Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. A reading from the book of Luke. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. We'd like to invite our host forward to receive our offering. This is a part of our liturgy that uh, we have each week for us to say thank you to the Father for every good and perfect gift he's brought into our lives. And I thought we'd have a little charismatic experience this morning while we receive the offering. I have your attention now, don't I? Would you just out loud say thank you to the Father for everything he's given you, say thank you in as many languages as you know. Out loud. Spasiba ya. Wow. We've got charismatic potential in this room. Amen. Thank you, Father. Hey, uh, one other thing, while we're doing this uh, time of giving and a little bit of family news, uh, we want you to mark a date on your calendar. January 27th, we are having a celebration of Nick and Barb Lillo. If you're new to Waterstone, we've just gone through our first ever senior pastor transition, first in 35 years. And uh, it's gone well, it's been healthy, and one of the things though, the next step in the process for us is to honor Nick and Barb. So uh, uh, there are the details. There's child care provided for kindergarten and under. Uh, we'd like you to bring something that night with you. We'd like you to bring a note, a card, something you can leave with Nick that just shares uh, the impact that his ministry has had on you. Or maybe a note to Barb. 
Uh, you know, she's the real reason Nick's been able to be here with us. So uh, anything you'd want to share in terms of encouragement and words of honor, bring with you that night, and we'll present those to Nick as well. But please plan to be here on January 27th. We'll be here in this room. Year of our Lord, January 2019, a new era, Waterstone 2.0. We proclaim this year the year of neighboring. You heard the story. Uh, I haven't done the polling, but I suspect that the parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus' most well-known story. Even outside of the Christian world, throughout the world, this story is well-known, which is rather odd when you think about it, right? I mean, this story was told by an obscure, itinerant, backwoods preacher from some third-rate vassal province in the Middle East, uh, far off, supposedly, the beaten path of history. And yet, when this preacher told this story about a foreigner, a phrase was coined into the vocabulary of the centuries. Who is this man, this Jesus? Now, what's lesser known The story's known, what's lesser known is the question that launched the story. The question was asked by uh, uh, an expert in the law, the text says. Now, we think lawyer, but probably a theologian would be more accurate as to who this man was, a a religious professor. He was a man who, uh, as an expert in the law, had the Pentateuch memorized, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, put to memory... And then he was adept at applying that to situations of dispute, of guidance, of counsel uh, for the synagogue life. So an expert in the law, and and it says that he stands to ask the question. Now, I don't think that was out of reverence. I think it was out of relish. He had an opportunity. In fact, the text later says he wanted to, did you catch it, justify himself. So he stands, he seizes the moment, he's got an opportunity to engage and make a name for himself at the expense of this Galilean rabbi, and he asks the question. Here's the question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you have to admit, don't you? That's a really good question. I mean, that's a big question. Inherit eternal life. Life. How, in other words, does a person know God and get to live with him forever? That's huge. In fact, it's not only good for what's after this life, it's actually good for what's in this life. Because the answer to that question about afterlife really determines how you're going to live in this life. And it defines what this life is. I mean, to quote Bill Shakespeare, I mean, is it a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Or... Is this life mattering because we are to know God and will live with him forever? It changes the supreme authority for this life. It's a very theological and telling question. But what I admire here in this moment about Jesus is his restraint. He really could have gone after this expert in the law because everyone knows, you know, I know, you don't do anything for an inheritance, Inheritances are not earned. You have no control over an inheritance any more than you have any control into the family you were born into. 
You don't earn your way into a family. You just get into a family. You, you don't earn an inheritance. You grace or get an inheritance. And I, but a lot of people think that about God's family, don't they? They're always asking, well, what do I have to do? I have to try harder. I have to do enough good. And then I can get into the father's family. Well, it doesn't work that way. An inheritance does not work that way. But Jesus lets that go for now. And his answer is rather interesting. He answers the lawyer's question. Now, again, he's a theologian. I'm just going to call him lawyers just because it's easier for us to remember lawyer. And Jesus is saying some interesting things about a lawyer, which, I don't know, it just feels strangely good to me. Um, <laughs> I'll talk to all the lawyers. We'll have coffee after the, after the service. So. The lawyer asks a question, and Jesus answers his question with a question. Wow, isn't that interesting? Now, there's a great book out there I want to recommend to you. It's called Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman. And what Randy does is goes through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and looks at every time Jesus had a conversation. And what stands out is how frequent this was as a technique that Jesus used. Whenever he was asked a question, he would answer with a question. So you, you first want to ask, why? Well, think about it. If a person comes and they have a, a question and they ask you that question, wouldn't it be much more beneficial for that person to really be able to think through the question and potential answers and get to a place where they are talking themselves into some of the answers? It will be much more memorable to them if they can process the question with you than rather if they ask the question and you proceed with a 20-minute lecture to answer their question and their eyes glaze over and they probably didn't even ask the question for your lecture. They asked the question so they could win an argument with you. It's a smart alecky question. How much more effective is a question to a question than an answer to a question? Now, let me illustrate. One of the things Newman does, he says, now look, Jesus, a lot of the conversations he had in the Gospels are about a very thorny, uncomfortable topic, hell. Jesus talked about hell almost as much as he talked about anything else. And that's a tough question. And it's always interesting to see how Jesus answered that question with a question. Now, have you ever been asked that question? It goes something like this. You don't really believe that anyone who doesn't receive Jesus in this life ends up in hell in the next. Do you? How many of you have been asked that question? Quite a number. It's a, and it's a hard question. It's a fair question. It's a good question. But I would suggest to you that one of the better responses to that question is not to proceed with a 20-minute lecture on, okay, you know, no one in hell wants out of hell. They chose hell. And you proceed to talk about human free will. You proceed to talk about God's holiness. You proceed to talk about his justice. You proceed about even hell's is actually part of God's love. And again, their eyes glaze over and they're on to the next thing. How much more effective if you were to respond to that question, you don't really believe someone goes to hell if they don't believe in Jesus, do you? If you said something like this, well, does nobody deserve to go to hell? Nobody? And then what would you anticipate their answer being? Often something like this, at least in my experience, well, um, let's see, maybe, maybe some, maybe who? Hitler. Everyone says Hitler. <laughs> Hitler, bin Laden, Mussolini. Mussolini, coach of the Oakland Raiders. I mean, there's a number of people. 
who really deserve it. And so they're thinking, right? They're thinking, who deserves it? And then the next question could be, and by the way, you should have all these questions in your mental pocket. That's, I, I would really recommend this book to you. It helps you prepare the questions for the questions you will get asked. The next question is something like, well, then, uh, you know, on what basis, you know, Hitler, what basis, what basis does Hitler deserve to go to hell? What did he do? What basis does someone do to go to heaven? And suddenly, you're in this fantastic discussion about God, his place in our life, his holiness, about free will, about choices, about the human heart, and you're in this amazing discussion. And you see, the other thing I'm convinced of after some years of doing this is that most people's worldview is not reflected it's usually little tabs of paper on the metaphysical desk. They've picked a little bit, oh, that sounds good, and they stick it on their desk. Oh, that sounds good, they stick it on their desk. But they've never connected the notes, and they've never really thought, well, really, is that, is that true? It just sounds good, but is it true? What's the evidence? I mean, they've never, they have a bunch of sticky notes on their desk, but they've never really put the whole desktop together. And you can be a great facilitator in helping them connect the dots and really kind of expose some things. Uh, so all that's to say, th that was free advice. I will not charge you for that this morning on that. I just wanted us to see Jesus' way of answering questions was most often with questions. So his answer, the question is, well, you're the expert in the law. What do you think? How do you inherit eternal life? What do you think? And now I'm sure that a lawyer was just off the rails for just a moment because he didn't like it. now Jesus was asking the questions. So he gathers himself and I think instinct kicks in. What does the law say? What does the law say about inheriting eternal life? And it comes to him, a prayer that he's prayed every day of his life since he was a little boy. The Shema. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. <sighs> That's the answer. That's the answer. Now, again, I admire Jesus' restraint. First of all, he could have said something like, hmm, where have I heard that before? Who, who wrote that? That's really good. <laughs> but no, what Jesus says is even more remarkable. He says, that's a good answer. Go and do it. Now, at first, we think, wait a minute, Jesus. You know, you did have remarkable restraint when you said that no one can inherit eternal life. It's a gift. You don't earn it. But now you're saying to go love your God and love your neighbor, and you do earn it? Is that what you're saying? No, that's not what Jesus said. See what he's doing here. This is a love trap for a lawyer. He loves this man, and he's taking him down a gospel road here because you and I, we know this, right? That we can't love the Lord our God with all our heart. Not for 30 seconds we can't. We can't love him with all our strength. We can't love him with all our soul. We can't love him with all our mind. I love the Archbishop William Temple years ago had this great quote that's one of those sticky notes that's stuck on me. He said, religion 
is what you do with your solitude. Religion is what you do with your solitude. So think with me for a moment. You have you know, a minute where you don't have to think about your work, you don't have to think about your family, you don't have to think about your health, you don't have to think about your bills, you don't have to think about anything else. You just have this like pleasured solitude minute. Where does your mind go? Should it go to the one who made you, who saved you, who gives you your next breath, should at least part of that minute go to him? How often does it? Point being, the trap. Lawyer, that's a good answer, except for one thing. You are not perfect, and you cannot do it. Well, how about loving my neighbor? Can you love your neighbor? Now, I think all of us, if I asked, do you love your neighbor, we'd all raise our hands. But let's try this question. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, I shoveled his driveway yesterday. <laughs> okay. As yourself. Do you love your neighbor with the same force, intentionality, and persistence with which you love yourself? And the answer is no. I mean, strike two. You cannot do this, lawyer. You cannot do it. But the lawyer is not getting it. He fails the love trap. So he goes to the next question. He redirects and he says in verse 29, wanting to justify himself, who is my neighbor? Now, that's a very interesting question because what the lawyer is asking is, how far should my love go? What are the limits? You know, who should I love? And we know pretty well from Jesus' other uh, encounters with his religious leadership in the Gospels that uh, the Jews believed the answer to that question was another Jew who was trying to obey the law. That's my neighbor. Anyone who's not a Jew, anyone from a different worldview, a different faith, different ethnic background, they're not my neighbor. My neighbor is my tribe. I love my tribe. I'll serve them. That was the, Jew, the, the lawyer's Jewish framework of that day he was living in. So Jesus is going to redirect. What's interesting is that instead, this time, Jesus, instead of using a question, he uses the next best way to witness to Jesus with somebody. You know what the next best way is? Tell a story. Tell a story. Jesus tells this amazing story. Let me paraphrase it quickly, but with some color commentary. There's a man, it says. Doesn't tell us much about the man, but we need to know this about the ancient world. In the ancient world, there were two really, this is a rather sophisticated system where you could tell if someone could be your neighbor or not by who they were. The first way was how they were dressed. In the ancient world, the way you dress told people your vocation and it told people your economic status by the way you were dressed. So, 
hold that. The other thing about the ancient world, how you could tell if someone could be your neighbor if they were of your tribe, was the language they spoke. Now, we look at the ancient world and we think, oh, we're so much more sophisticated than they are. Well, in many ways, yes. In many ways, no. Do you realize that in the ancient world, the average peasant, the average person spoke two to three different languages? Think about that. Everyone spoke Aramaic. It was the trade language. In the north, in Galilee, where Jesus was from, they spoke Greek. If you were at all connected with Rome or Roman government, you spoke Latin. And the Jews spoke Hebrew. Amazing. The, the average person, I would guess, spoke at least three languages in the ancient world in the Middle East. Three. But the thing is, you could tell who someone was by either the language they spoke or the dialect with which they spoke it. Now, here's what's interesting. By the time the characters in Jesus' story, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, by the time they walk up on this man, what is he? He's stripped naked, no clothes, can't tell from that, and he's unconscious, so he can't talk. So he's just a man in need. He is a man in need. The other thing about this is he was traveling. He was a traveling man. Now, this is the road. It's actually existed. While the story Jesus tells is fictional, this road was not. This is the road from Jerusalem, 2,500 feet above sea level, to Jericho, 800 feet above sea level. It's a winding switchback road uh, over 17 miles of descent if you're coming from Jerusalem. The other thing is there are some narrow passes on this road, one of which in Jesus' day was called the Pass of Blood because it was known that robbers actually live there and if you were traveling by yourself as this poor man was, you were likely to have what happened to him happen to you and that was this. They jumped him, it was violent, they beat him unconscious, took all his personal belongings including his clothes and left him lying by the roadside. Rough. But, wow, desolate road, rough stretch, a priest. Wow, a priest, thank you, a priest is walking. He comes up and the text is very emphatic. The priest sees him, sees him, keeps walking, passes on the other side of the road. But if ever there was a lucky day to get mugged, it was this day because a Levite's coming. And the Levite, and the text is emphatic, sees him, keeps walking, passes by on the other side of the road. Next, oh no, a Samaritan, exclamation point. More on the exclamation point in a few minutes. But a Samaritan comes. The Samaritan, text is emphatic, sees him takes pity on him, gets off his donkey, off his ah, donkey, <laughs> down into the ditch, bandages his wounds, oil and wine, soothing and aseptic, puts him on his donkey, walks at least some portion of the 17 miles carrying this man on his beast of burden, takes him to an inn, loses a night of travel, stays the night. In the morning, tells the innkeeper, here are two days' wages, enough for a two-week stay. Whatever he needs more, I'll settle with you when I come back through. 
This is amazing, wouldn't you agree? Concrete, costly neighboring. This is the heart of neighboring. Now, New Testament scholar D.A. Carson pushes it even further when he says, in the ancient world, if you ever got caught in a predicament like this, where you were actually at somebody's mercy and debt, a two-week stay or longer in a, in a hotel or an inn, and you lost your visa card, you had no other means of paying for anything, the way it worked in the ancient world is that you had to stay and serve off that debt. So there's no telling, but this Samaritan probably saved this beaten man from some kind of short-term slavery. This is radical neighboring. So after the story, I imagine he had the lawyer's full attention. And then he says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man. Now hold that question for a moment. There are two hinges in this story that open the door to its understanding. The first hinge is this. Do you notice? This is subtle but profound. Do you notice that Jesus changed the question? The question is no longer who is my neighbor? What are the limits? How far do I have to go? The object of love, who he is, that depends on whether or not I help him. The focus of the love is no longer on the who is my neighbor? Do you see that Jesus changes the focus to who is a neighbor? He puts the focus on the subject of the love. He wants the lawyer and you and I to be asking the main question from this text. Am I a neighbor? Do you see what an amazing teacher Jesus Christ is. That's the question. Am I a neighbor? Now, which of these three? What he really, I think, wants the lawyer to do is walk back through and say, you know, each of the three saw the same thing. They each saw the same scene. But what did they see? that made them respond the way they did. I submit to you that the point of the parable is this. What you see is determined by who you are. What you see is determined by who you are. So let's go back through, shall we? Real quick, real quick, go back through. What did the beaten man see? You know, Jesus kind of gave the lawyer the clipboard, go up, beaten man, I'm taking a survey here. Who's your neighbor? Beaten man, anyone, help, help. Reminds me, I actually heard one of the greatest preachers of our day, he's with the Lord now. His name was Haddon Robinson. He used to be the president of Denver Seminary. I actually heard him preach on this text. and The sermon today is still so vivid. I remember during the sermon, he said at this point, and he was talking about the beaten man, he said yeah, one time, he and his wife, Bonnie, were in the front seats of the car driving home, two kids in the back, one of which was a five- or six-year-old son, Tori. And uh, Haddon asked his son, Tori, what did you learn today in Sunday school? And Tori said, oh, we learned about uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Haddon said, well, tell me, tell me the story. And so Tori gets rolling, five, six years old. He could describe how the beaten man received every abrasion, cut, bruise, 
just on and on about right hook, left jab, everything. And uh, Haddon said, I looked at Bonnie, I said, have you been letting him watch too much TV? What's going on here? And uh, Haddon then said, there's no question at this point in Tori's life, he was on the side of the robbers. And uh, (laughs) so he goes on, it just describes the whole scene. And then finally, Haddon says, but Tori, Tori, what's what's the lesson of this story? What's the lesson? Tori thinks for a moment and says, it means that when I'm in trouble, you have to help me. That's pretty good, isn't it? From the beaten man's point of view, that's what he sees. When I'm in trouble, you have to help me. You know, let me step out of the story for just a minute. I think one of the reasons sometimes our heart gets a little cold, why sometimes neighboring becomes a struggle for us, if I could just say it bluntly, sometimes we forget what it's like to be in trouble. Sometimes we don't take the mental energy to think through what it's like to be in that person's shoes. And so one of the disciplines, and I would argue instincts of being a Christian, is that we need to re-neighbor ourselves often. Re-neighbor. What's it like to be in his shoes? What's it like to be in that kind of trouble? We drive by people. We see people on the news. The first instinct should be, what's it like to be in their shoes? Re-neighbor. Do you know, I want to push a class. We're pushing a, a, a class. It's, it's actually a class that we want every person at Waterstone to take. It's called Justice in Action. It starts next Sunday. You can still sign up out in the hub today. This is a class that goes global. It goes around the world. It looks at all the social issues, places where you know, government and systems are breaking down, social issues of our day, immigration, poverty, uh, global war, all this thing. Uh, and you'll learn amazing stuff about this, this class, Justice in Action. But I suggest the main value, and we've seen this, over 100 people have been through this class, and we see it happen again and again and again. What the class does is actually re-neighbor you. It helps you walk in the shoes of suffering people for several weeks, and you come out of the class radically transformed. So please, please, it's on Sunday mornings. It starts next week. Information out in the hub, justice in action. Let's get re-neighbored. So that's the beaten man. That's what he saw. The next man is the priest comes walking by, a pastor. I have really wrestled with this. What did the pastor see? Why didn't he stop? The only answer I can come up with is that he was from New York City. (laughs) They step over people on escalators in New York City. No, do you know what I think it was? Chicago too, too. (laughs) yeah. It would not surprise me if the priest didn't stop because of religious reasons. You know in the law, you're not supposed to touch a dead body. You're not supposed to have the appearance of blood or, you know, doing something 
against the law and the appearance of evil and what will people think and if they think that then uh, you know I might lose my position at the synagogue and what good's a synagogue without a priest religious reasons do you know that in the gospels you read about Jesus religious reasons drove him to anger that was never the intent of the law to avoid loving people in fact, you don't understand the law if that's where you end up. The law was intended to help people love people and take care of people. But sometimes, and you need to look deep in your heart as I look in mine, sometimes if we're honest, the reason we do not help people is because we think their sin and their struggle will somehow rub off on us. The Levite. The Levite took care of the scrolls. What did he see? He was a worship pastor. I submit to you that worship pastors are always nicer than any other kind of pastors. But why didn't he stop? I would bet he did not stop because of the risk factor. I mean, if they did it to him, the beat man... There's no telling. They could come out from any of those cracks and crevices and beat me up. And I have a family. I have a life. I can't risk like that. There's a risk of danger. Or uh, I bet he had in mind the convenience factor. I mean, worship service starts at five. I gotta be there. I can't, I don't have time for this. Convenience factor. Whatever the reasons, what is it about this? And by the way, right? We all have our reasons why we choose not to neighbor at times. What about this Samaritan? Exclamation point. A Samaritan. You know, the first thing about the Samaritan is he was surprised as anyone that he was in this story. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They called them dogs, half-breeds. You see, Samaritans, had Jewish roots. They were part of the 10 tribes of Israel 700 years earlier that were carried off into Assyrian captivity. They intermarried with the Gentiles, thus the half-breed. So they weren't like full-blooded Jews. And then they were theologically suspect. You know, they built their own temple up in Samaria. They only believed that the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was the full Bible, they only held to those books, which means they didn't honor David, King David, as king, nor did they honor the Jerusalem temple. So stay away from those people. They are theologically suspect. They don't know the truth. Why, Why do you think Jesus chose a Samaritan to be the hero of the story? Why? I mean, I don't think we get it, the electricity in this. Listen, this would be like Jesus in our culture choosing the role model to be someone who's burning the flag. This would be like Jesus holding up as the hero the one who kneels during the national anthem. Does he have your attention now? This is the hero, this is the role model. Why does Jesus choose the Samaritan? I submit to you he chooses the Samaritan because 
What you see is determined by who you are. Who was the Samaritan? Well, the text is clear. On the inside, the Samaritan was one who saw the same thing as the other two guys. By the way, you get it, right? This is a double whammy. The first whammy is this, that the highest representation of Jewish piety in the priest and the Levi saw the scene and did nothing. Slam. But the one who saw the scene and did something, a Samaritan. Slam. What made the Samaritan see? The text is clear. Here's the second hinge. The first hinge is Jesus changed the question. It's not who's your neighbor, it's am I a neighbor? The second hinge, what makes you a neighbor is what you have inside. Did you catch that in the text? The Samaritan saw and then what? Took pity. Took Pity. It's my favorite Greek word. I want to teach it to you. Since we already spoke in tongues, I'll give you another one. Splachna. Say it. Splachna. Speak the Greek. Splachna. <laughs> it's where we get our English word spleen. It means guts. In the ancient world, the seat of the emotions was the guts. When your guts were moved. When you had emotion and you felt something, splachna. Do you know that word is used most of anyone or anything else, you'll never guess, of whom? Jesus. Jesus felt. He had compassion. He looked on the crowds with splachna. I am suggesting to you that what Jesus wants to say is what makes you a neighbor is when you feel it on the inside, when you have the splachna that he has. Do you see? Do you see? What you see is determined by who you are. Who are you? Well, on the inside, if you have splachna, you'll neighbor. Where do you get that splachna? From the one who in scripture is described by the word, Jesus. Here's my point. When you realize, and to the degree you realize it, that you've been radically neighbored by Jesus Christ, then on your insides, you will neighbor radically toward others. Let me say that again. When you realize you've been neighbored radically by Jesus Christ, you then go and radically neighbor others. The apostle John said it this way, we love because he first loved us. Paul put it this way, the Father pours the Spirit into our hearts, pours the love of the Father, flows through us to others. You see, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is the good Samaritan, isn't he? He's the one who saw us lost in a ditch. He's the one who got off the donkey, stepped into the ditch with us, bandaged our wounds, paid our debts, delivered us from slavery. It's Jesus. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus is the good Samaritan. And to the degree you see him as your good Samaritan is the degree that you go and neighbor to others in need. That is the heart 
of neighboring. I want Waterstone to be this kind of heart. Because when we have this kind of heart, the world will notice. In the book of Acts, quickly, it says that the early church, the spirit came in, God transforms hearts. They began to give their possessions to the poor. And it, there's this one line in there that says that the, uh, the church held favor with everyone. The church was held in favor by everyone. And then there's this other great book called uh, The Rise of Christianity by a professor at the University of Washington named Rodney Stark. He says that in the first two centuries of Christianity, there were two huge epidemics. They happened uh, about 40 years from each other, and together they, they wiped out a third of the population of the Roman Empire in the first two centuries after Jesus now, what happened was, is that when rumors of the epidemic started coming to the cities, guess what would happen? The elites would flee, the medical professionals would flee, and the pagan priests would flee. Guess who stayed? The church. The church stayed, and they cared for the sick, and they buried the dead. And Stark says, that more than any other single factor, that courageous neighboring, accounts for the massive growth of the church in the first 300 years. In fact, it got to such a degree and noticed all the way up that in 360 AD, we have this amazing quote by a Roman emperor, Julian. He said, the religion of the Greeks does not yet prosper as I would wish on account of those who profess it. But the gifts of the gods are great and splendid, better than any prayer or any hope. Why then do we think that this is sufficient and do not observe what? How the kindness of the Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of their dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause. Even the emperor was captured by the neighboring heart of the early church. And may it be for Waterstone that when people see our neighboring hearts, they are astonished. It's inexplicable how we love. You know, um, I also remember how Haddon Robinson ended his sermon. It went like this. Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to see the queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what saw you there? I saw a wee mouse sitting under a chair. So Haddon said, well, the cats got back and they had a feline PowerPoint presentation and it was uh, mouse after mouse after mouse. What, didn't you go to, I mean, London's an amazing city. Did you see the London Bridge? Did you see Big Ben? Did you see Buckingham Palace? Did you see the queen? Well, we got in. The security wasn't bad. We got in. Well, what was the queen wearing? I don't know. What did the queen eat? I don't know. What did the queen say? I don't know, but there was an amazing mouse under her chair. The mouse is of infinitely more importance than the queen when you are a pussycat at heart. What are you at heart? 
do you have a neighboring heart who is of infinitely more importance to you? Today, if you're new to Waterstone, you're checking out this Christian thing. One of the ways to get a new heart, Jesus says, is to call on him. So I'd like to finish with just a brief prayer. If there's someone here who wants a new heart, if there's someone here who wants a relationship, if there's someone here who wants eternal life, just pray this prayer with me, and then we'll all stand and proclaim our faith together. Let's pray. Father, this is an amazing story told by an amazing man. But once you get to know him, he changes your heart. He changes your mind. He runs after you. He won't let you off easy, but he won't let you fall. And to know him is to love him. To love him is to serve him. To serve him is to have a new king in your heart. And that is why we were made I pray for anyone here this morning who wants Jesus in their heart that they could now in just these two simple words say, I'm yours. I'm yours. Jesus, I'm yours.